I'm Joshua Davidson, Senior Rabbi of Temple Emmanuel, and on behalf of our members and our Stryker Cultural Center, I'm honored to welcome all of you for a critical discussion about our future, which in the last 50 years has never felt more complicated than it does right now. The catastrophe of October 7th not only left 1,400 Israelis dead, 4,000 wounded, and the families of 240 hostages wondering if they would ever see their loved ones again, it sent a seismic shock through world Jewry. I returned just this morning from Israel, visiting with some of the bereaved, some of the wounded, some of those praying and waiting for their loved ones' safe return, and one of those families will be at services here tomorrow night. It was a heart-wrenching trip, and the anxiety in the air was palpable. And the crisis there has spawned a parallel crisis here. The open hatred of Israel and the blaming of Jews for our own suffering is at once mystifying, infuriating, and terrifying. In my 25 years in the rabbinate, I have never witnessed the level of anguish the Jewish community is now experiencing. Our commitment to Jewish peoplehood and its quintessence, the state of Israel, has taken on new urgency. And the conflagration of anti-Semitic activity sparked by Israel's efforts to defend itself has caused us to ask painful questions about our security here in the diaspora. Of course, well before the horrific attack on Israel, leading Jewish thinkers were already wrestling with pressing questions about the future of global Jewry. And tonight we're honored to hear from some of those thinkers. My sincere thanks to our partners and co-sponsors, the Forward and the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History. And now to begin our program and introduce the wonderful participants, please welcome Liel Leibovitz and Stephanie Botnick, co-hosts of Tablet Studios' popular Unorthodox podcast. I am on the far right, as always. <laughs> I wanted to be also the uh, first person in Temple Emmanuel history to wear a black hat on the bima. Uh, it is our absolute pleasure to be here tonight. We are delighted to have this conversation. This is always going to be an extremely important conversation. Uh, it just grew urgent. Uh, the questions that we're asking here uh, are no longer just intellectual exercises for some distant future. Their questions for our very survival. Before we introduce, before we jump in, before we begin, <clears throat> a note about the format, because very soon, as you can see from these very colorful, this looks like the, the opening shot of Friends, like everything is like very beautiful, color-coordinated. Um, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to begin in a conversation with Rabbi David Wolpe and David Chazoni, uh, after which we'll ask all of our esteemed panelists to join us on the stage each one of them will have two minutes, precisely, uh, strictly and sternly moderated by us to present their idea of what is the Jewish priority we should focus on uh, in years to come. Uh, we will then have a little conversation with them, ask a few questions all around, and then uh, you have been given notes uh, as you were cue cards as you, as you entered here today. Uh, feel free, as you're listening to everyone talk, to jot down your questions. We will make sure to leave uh, ample time for our panelists to address them. 
Welcome to the Davids. Uh, David Hazoni, Rabbi David Wolpe, two incredible figures, um, and even more so now, David, with, with this book. Uh, would you want to just start by introducing yourselves? Tell us who you are. We're keeping this informal tonight. Um, <clears throat> my name is David Wolpe. Um, I was a rabbi in Los Angeles for many years, and now I'm doing a visiting scholar at Harvard Divinity School, and I teach once a month here in the Yisod program, so I will be back here on, uh, what, Tuesday night. So <laughs> if you don't like something I said tonight or like something I said tonight, you can come back Tuesday night, and uh, I will say it again. Uh, I'm David Hazoni. I am the editor of this book, Jewish Priorities, and uh, I live in Jerusalem, and um, I've spent a long career holding writers' hands and convincing creative people to focus. How many of your children are currently at war? Um, you mean in uniform? <laughs> I have five children in the IDF right now. a good place to start. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this me that meme, like how it started, how it's going. Um, this book came out, Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals for the Future of Our People, at an unbelievably challenging and poignant and urgent moment. So tell us a little bit about what you envisioned when you thought of this project, and then what this project actually is now that it's out in the world, and now that the world looks the way it does. Well, the, um, the, the book was started by a conversation that uh, was initiated by the publisher, Adam Ballow, who is going to speak a little later on. Um, he said to me, you know, anthologies can really make a very big impact. Did you know that? And I said, well, I've never walked into a bookstore and said, show me your anthologies. But he said, no, 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 no. If you pick the right niche, then you can really take kind of a snapshot of a generation and maybe, maybe even the, the beginning of a movement. And the question is, what's your niche? And I said how about the entire Jewish people? And he said, that's ambitious. Uh, how would that work? And then we started talking about it and, and conceiving. And I said to him, listen, the Jewish people as a whole are very much focused on either looking inward at their own subgroups, denominations, organizations, political camps, or outward at sort of the universal and, you know, through Tikkun Alam and, and all these other kind of universalistic... But very rarely do we really focus on the unit that is the Jewish people. And I said, instead of talking about it as an abstraction, let's demonstrate it. Let's take a book that would actually bring the full spectrum from ultra-Orthodox to secular, from the political left to the political right, younger influencers and veteran writers, Israel, diaspora, Israel, the U.S., and the other diasporas, and kind of take a snapshot of our people and to ask every one of them to imagine they're giving a, a, a TED talk to the whole Jewish people and they can focus on one thing, one proposal, one priority for our people. And so we envisioned it as a kind of rare, really unusual um, opportunity to have everybody come together not to agree but to disagree, kind of like in the Talmud, and, uh, and even uh, almost like an intellectual food fight. Needless to say, that suddenly shifted when war came. Um, it is the deepest nightmare of most authors 
that you're going to work on a book for, in, in this case, two years. In, uh, uh, many authors work on their books for five or ten years, and to have history suddenly come and obviate the entire process. And I expected this event, plus all the other events that we're doing to, to launch the book, to suddenly disappear. And when you're in a deep trauma, as I was in the wake of the war, as every Israeli was, you focus on very practical things as a, as a coping mechanism, as a way of getting through the day. And so I started focusing on this issue. Um, and then I was discovered that Gadi said to me, oh, we want to do this event. And in Philadelphia at the Weizmann Museum last week, oh, we need to do this event. And at the Z3 conference in Palo Alto on su- this coming Sunday, we have to do this event. So I got on a plane, which was very hard to do. And I discovered that while we Israelis were going through what we've been going through, the diaspora is going through something not so different and in some ways more acute um, because it's coupled with fear and a feeling of loneliness to a degree that Israelis might not be fully, might not be in common with us. So it became very important, very, very important. Albino, I want to ask you a uh, variation on the theme. Um, from your perch, David has his own um, production <laughs> schedule and responsibilities. Here you are observing the world, someone who's been uh, at, at the helm of this community. Um, I'm not blaming you for anything. I'm, I'm just saying it as a means of, of noting your, your eminence. Uh, when you look at a book, 65 ideas, solutions, suggestions, some of them profound, many of them quirky, do you think perhaps all of this is irrelevant now, that we have a totally different reshifting of priorities that occurred on October 7th? Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm always suspicious of permanent changes of consciousness. Uh, permanent changes of consciousness do last sometimes for a year or two. Um, everything changed after 9-11, except that then it didn't. Everything changed after COVID, except then it didn't. Uh, everything changed after October 7th, but then it doesn't. So what I would say is some parts of this will remain, just like some parts of those previous two cataclysmic events remained, but also there will be, I would say in this case, a regression to the norm. Um, That is, people will resume their lives sooner or later, and part of our task is to try to identify that which actually can be a permanent change. Um, because if you think about 9-11, I mean, what is the, uh, we think, yes, now we have to take our shoes off before we get on an airplane. Um, if we can sort of inject a greater awareness of the reality which is the most important difference between America and Israel, and that is that America has Canada, Mexico, ocean, ocean, And Israel lives in an area where it is surrounded by mild enemies and homicidal cults. Basically, you have a choice, right? Um, And if we can actually, and I think that 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 shift in consciousness might, might hold. And if it does, it would be a very salutary thing, not only for Americans in general, but I think for those Jews whose, I would say, whose eyes are open, which paradoxically are those who aren't woke. Rabbi Wilby, your essay in the book is about learning to argue better, yeah. um, and it's about the concept of arguing for the sake of heaven. That does seem to be one of those things that's 
extra relevant today. You know, we're about to assemble this full panel to talk about all sorts of different ideas. And I think all of us, at least in the past day, have had a fight or an imagined fight with someone online, in person, you're related to. There's so much tearing us apart right now, besides the obvious things that are, should be, you know, that are tearing us apart. Um, how, how can you remind us, or how can we remind ourselves, how to argue for the good? The first thing I would say is, you know, I, I often quote Joseph Epstein, who said, Jews don't listen, they wait. <laughs> um, and, and I think that especially when we are arguing with people who are on the other side of this divide, we don't listen. And the beginning of changing someone's mind is actually to listen to what they have to say. And I say this not, I'm not talking about, obviously, there are people that you just have to fight. But I'm in a place now with a lot, the other night I was speaking to a synagogue, and a guy got up and he said, I know you think, not me, but he was talking in general, he said, I know you think that all those students who are shouting Hamas slogans are all anti-Semites. He said, I just want you to know, I was an SDS radical when I was 20. And now I look back at what I said and I think, my God, what an idiot I was. And you have to give people space to grow for those who will grow. And so I would say the beginning of actually arguing or debating or talking productively is to be able to listen and to allow someone the space to be who they are without automatically assuming that they're a terrible enemy that must immediately be converted or, or their, their soul is lost and we are lost. Um, but that's hard to do. Rabbi, I will warn you that uh, you're only permitted three tokens of optimism for tonight's discussion. <laughs> you have just used one. We will keep track. Uh, before we bring everyone else on stage, um, I would like to ask you, David, a task like this is in large part a task of setting boundaries of saying, well, you know, there are a lot of people we could ask, and there are a lot of ideas that people would love to contribute. Some of them are, frankly, uh, extreme. Some of them would be considered revolting by large members of the community. When, when you and Adam started to have this conversation, was there a discussion like, okay, these are the parameters, these are the lines, we will never advocate for this, this, or this? Yeah. Um... I decided that I didn't want anybody whose core identity begins with the word anti. And it doesn't matter what, whether it was anti-Zionists or anti-reform religious people, or I, I, I wanted constructive ideas, and I wanted people whose core identity began as a construction. So we do have a very broad spectrum. We have uh, uh, someone like Shaul Magid, who's a diasporist, but that's his identity. He believes in advocating for the strengths of the Jewish people in the conditions of, and he uses the word exile. And on the, and on the other side, we have ultra-Orthodox Jews who, from different versions of ultra-Orthodoxy, but they're not, but they all believe in peoplehood to the extent that they're, they want to be part of this conversation. And I think that was a really useful rule of thumb. I, I, I wanted to also respond to something that Rabbi Wolpe said. It will not be a Jewish conversation if you didn't. Go ahead. Right. But he said it so politely. Right. Um, this is a generational trauma. This is as profound for the Jewish people as Pearl Harbor was for the United States. 
Um, and you're right that there will be some permanent and some temporary changes. But I think that the, the key to knowing what are going to be the permanent changes are what Jews do. Um, because we are showing ourselves something about who we are. And certainly in Israel, this is incredibly clear. During the judicial reform protests, I wrote a piece pointing out that this is different from all protests around the Western world because it's the only one where both sides are waving the same national flag. And that underneath it all, there's a tr tremendous, profound commitment to our country. And that suddenly revealed itself in full force after the war began, when all of that was put to the side for the sake of mobilizing. And I think that if the Jewish diaspora mobilizes in the same way, dropping, shelving, putting to the side for now political differences, denominational differences, uh, institutional turf wars, and puts it all to the side in order to mobilize and be effective, that's going to show ourselves something about who we are. That, and I think that will be permanent. I, I hope that you are right that that will be permanent. Um, I think that it will show us that in the face of an immediate and powerful threat, we can come together, which I don't think most people probably wouldn't have doubted that in advance. Um, but the forces of division in this world are extremely strong. And until there is some sort of societal shift, uh, and I don't think any event will have it, I think that that will have to happen over time, um, my guess is cracks will reappear. Um, so we have to take advantage of this moment to do as much as we can, as quickly as we can. This is one of those opportunities that might not come again. So let's take advantage of this moment. Let's bring up all of our panelists, um, all of whom are featured in this wonderful book. They're going to come up here. They're going to introduce themselves. Um, this, is a, this is like a very, this is a stacked bench here we got. I would like to say everyone is free to sit wherever they want, except for Brett Stevens, who must take the green chair, for he has to leave early. <laughs> all right, let's start off. Let's all... In we're going to have each of you introduce yourselves. By the way, this is like the most Jews with the shortest amount of time, with the most interesting things to say. Um, so sorry about that. But um, let's start with you, Brett. We'll do back row, front row, back row, then we'll swing back around. Tell us who you are and what your proposal is. Make the case in like two minutes. Uh, I'm Brett Stevens. I'm the editor-in-chief of Sapir. I write for other publications. Um, <laughs> I, uh, uh, you can read my proposal in the book because uh, after uh, the events of this or last month, uh, I want to offer something else in the minute or so that uh, I have. Um, I think we can speak of October 7th Israelis. I would like to propose um, October 8th American Jews because on October 8th, after this um, epic horror taking place in Israel. We woke up and before Israel, the Israelis had begun to retaliate, practically before Israelis had gotten their uh, boots on to take action to defend their people, there were already protests being organized by the Democratic Socialists in America and other progressive groups gathering in Times Square, marching over to the um, Israeli uh, consulate uh, on, on, on the east side to chant from the river to the sea uh, and to gloat, to gloat at the murder 
and kidnapping of more than, uh, as it turned out, more than well over um, a thousand Jews. And if that was not a moment of awakening for, or should not have been a moment of awakening for our entire community, I don't know what is going to wake us up. On October 8th, American Jews discovered who our friends are not, who our friends are not. And we have to take cognizance of those facts, as painful as it may be for many of us in our personal capacity, as painful as it may be when we remember how we joined their struggle and, and suffered with them in their grief, and they have not returned the favor at our moment of grief in our moment of struggle. The Jewish people have always known, or have at their best, always known to have an instinct for danger. We've always known when to get up and get out. I applaud, I applaud those philanthropists who are closing their checkpoint, check, checkbooks <laughs> and saying, Goodbye to Harvard, goodbye to Penn, goodbye to Cornell, goodbye to Brown, goodbye to Berkeley, goodbye to all of these schools that once, that once stood for something great and now stand for the decay and the deterioration um, and the shuddering of the, American liberal imag uh, of the American liberal imagination. And it's not just the universities from which we have to uh, exit. It's all kinds of institutions where we once were welcome, particularly cultural institutions that don't have our back, aren't our allies, aren't our friends. At our best, we've always known if we're not wanted, we're going to pick up shop and we're going to go start our own thing, our own party. This is something that Liel has written about beautifully for Sapir. I uh, urge all of you to uh, go to sapirjournal.org um, or, 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 or get our beautiful paper edition. But the point is, when you're not wanted, go start your own thing, be the cool kid, let others join you, and take note of who did not stand by you, who did not stand by us at a moment like this. That is my proposal for the Jewish future for American Jews. So I, um, I love everything about this. We're going to ask one follow-up question and then, and then move for each participant and then, and then move along. I, I obviously love everything uh, you just especially, said. Especially when it's your idea. Uh, well, that helps. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, to, to quote the, the great Jewish poet, in dreams begin responsibilities. And so if I ask you, okay, look, here are people who are watching an entire network of, of affiliations and identities, the universities they were so proud to attend, the newspapers that they were so proud to read, the party they were so proud to vote for, uh, all seem to have betrayed them. And now it is time to kind of recalibrate the, the course of action. Where do you send them first? What kind of institutions should we prioritize? What kind of ideas should we double down on? Even like, what, what, what books should we be reading right now, other, of course, than the Torah? And Jewish Priorities. <laughs> and Jewish Priorities, which is the original book of Jewish Priorities, Five Books of Moses, all the priorities we need. Look, I'm, I'm just going to guess that in this audience of, I don't know, 300 people, a uh, hundred of you have started incredible companies. A hundred of you spent 30 years of your lives the best years of your lives, taking incredible risks with your career, with your finances, to dream of something new and big that someone else hadn't done before. 
Do it philanthropically. Do it philanthropically. You know, in about five or six years, there's going to be 50 or so colleges you've all heard of that are going to drop off the cliff because they don't have the endowments that they need to sustain themselves. Invest in those colleges. Take over their boards. Recreate them. Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania basically decided the smart play was to become like 80% Jewish or something. I bet Muhlenberg is going to be topping lists of, uh, of, of great colleges in 30 or 40 years' time, okay? Invest in something like that. There's new media that's coming up. It's exciting. It's dynamic. There are brilliant voices, not the least of whom are uh, on on this stage, invest in those people, ask about, ask what their ideas are, particularly Liel, who for some reason I'm flattering this evening. Um, maybe it's the hat. Uh, um, uh, just, just take those entrepreneurial energies which have so defined such a large part of Jewish life and experience and say, how do we create institutions in our cultural sphere that will safeguard our interests, and our values. All right. Purple chair. Um, sorry. Oh, hi. I can stand up. Um, I'm Jody Rujoran. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Forward. I used to write for another publication as well. Um, and I, you asked, somebody asked in the introduction, we should talk about our essay unless we think our Jewish priority has changed. So I'll start by saying I think all of our number one priority is to bring these hostages home. And since it's very hard to know how to help do that, we will instead talk about stuff because we're Jews. Um, my essay, when, when David invited me to join this project, I at first was a little bit confused. I was like, I don't really make proposals. I don't tell people what their priorities should be. I ask them what their priorities are. I ask them other questions about what they care about and who they are and why and what their background is and uh, what's most important to them. So I realized that that was in fact my proposal which is that we should ask great questions, um, that we need to approach the world from a place of curiosity and inquiry. This is, of course, core to my profession as a journalist, but it really also is fundamental to our tradition as Jews. We see it, um, David writes about, Rabbi Wolfie writes about great arguments and arguments towards constructive um, discovery. And the asking of great questions is a part of that process. Um, and I would posit actually that both in the Talmud and today, we actually need people to ask more questions and make fewer um, grand statements and arguments. About a week ago, I got a text from my 16-year-old daughter. I was on the way back, I think, from an event on the stage. And she texted me first. She said, doesn't genocide need to be systematic and intentional? Isn't that the definition of genocide? She was confused by what she was seeing on her Instagram feed when people were throwing around the term genocide inappropriately. And then she texted me. The next thing she texted me, she said, how come the people who know the least about this sound the most confident and the people who know the most about it sound the least confident? 
she's good that one. Um, and I think that this is not, this is very true about this moment, especially on Instagram and TikTok where she gets a lot of her information. It's true about Israel and about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's true increasingly about so much of our world. And I think what we really need is for people to approach complex issues and approach each other with humility, with curiosity, with an ideology of inquiry instead of an ideology of I know what's best and I know you're wrong and I know not only are you wrong but you're probably bad or stupid or evil. So that is my challenge to all of us is when you see something that doesn't make sense to you, when you see something that makes you angry or scared, can you ask a question instead of either walking away or yelling? Can you ask a question? Do I have any time left? Yeah, well, I have a follow-up, which is, you okay, know, it's, it is in these moments where, you know, journalists have to ask tough questions. So for you at The Forward right now, what are some of the big questions that you're asking in this moment as you guide your coverage? Um, thank you. That's a great one. And I wanted to say a couple more quick things about journalistic questions, right? So one of the ways we think about um, which stories to do is we try to do stories where there's a big unexplored question that we don't know the answer to, as opposed to doing stories that prove something we think we already know or we think our audience wants to hear or doesn't want to hear or whatever. But can we choose a target that really contains an unexplored question? I think... I was thinking about, you know, the, the very question you asked, Stephanie, which is, like, one of the things a lot of people are riled up about is they don't think journalists are asking enough questions. You know, you could start with just what happened, how do we know, who says, who says something else. I'm thinking maybe about the hospital explosion in Gaza would have been really good if we slowed down to make sure we had all those questions answered. Um, the questions, though, one of the questions that I'm really living with right now, and this is a little narrower than your big question, right? Which is, I mean, really, it's like, how did we get here? How did it get this bad? And I was talking the other night with somebody about, um, you know, we've all been talking about the intelligence failure, Israel's intelligence failure that didn't understand that Hamas could breach the wall, that Hamas had this many tunnels, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like there was an intelligence failure in America about particularly what was going on on campus and with the next generation. I feel like we knew all this stuff. Brett's been talking about it for a long time. We knew it was, we knew what was going on. We knew also all the components of what was going on. And I think we had no idea, except for Brett, how, and Liel, how, who are always right about everything, obviously. No, but I think we, I, I really think there was a massive intelligence failure on the part of Jews of middle age who have been worrying over this question, what is going on with the younger generation around Israel, and have not been grappling with it, have not been coming to it with any sense of curiosity or need to discover or understand, have been sort of trying to shut it down or put it out of view, and the years have passed and the situation has festered, both there and here. And I think we now see this explosion because of our own failure to really understand what was going on and to ask about it, to ask about it. Thank you. Dara Horn. Novelist, author of 
Everybody loves dead Jews, and uh, the people love dead Jews, and, and the anti-Semitism Lorax yes. of the United States of America. My family calls me the anti-Semitism Lorax, and yeah, that's, I'm about as effective as the Lorax. Um, yes, I'm the author of a book called People Love Dead Jews, and uh, I still can't believe my publisher let me keep this title, and I'm really not happy to have been right about this. Um, and my, the book is about... Um, sort of the role that dead Jews play in a wider world's imagination. I didn't think it was a book about anti-Semitism, but it turns out that it was. Um, and in the Jewish Priorities book, um, I, I, I do think that what, I'm, what I wrote about is, is actually even more relevant now. Um, I talk about, um, I've, I've written elsewhere, um, most recently in a very long piece for The Atlantic about the failure of Holocaust education in America and sort of looking at how that has failed to, um, it was sort of, there was a lot of faith put in that enterprise that this was a way to inoculate the American public against anti-Semitism. Um, spoiler alert, it doesn't work. Um, but what I've, and, and then what I discovered is um, in investigating this topic, traveling all around the country, talking to educators, meeting with teachers and going into schools and meeting with people who design the museums and create the curriculums and things like that, um, what was really striking to me is that um, in this originally attempt to combat anti-Semitism by telling people about the Holocaust, we now have, I think it's like 26 states in this country where Holocaust education is required by law. Um, I want to be clear, it should be 50. I'm, I'm not arguing against Holocaust education. I do think it's important. There's not a single state in this country where any students in school need to learn who Jews are. And I'm going to share one anecdote from my reporting on this, um, I was in the Dallas Holocaust Museum last summer for a teacher conference, and I was talking to the, um, to the docents there, and I asked, when students come through this museum, what do they usually ask you? And they said, you know what they ask? They ask, are there still Jews alive today? Because if you went to this museum, you wouldn't know. And that is the re- I mean, and that's not an accident, because that's what's mandated by law. Um, my proposal in this book is that we should educate the broader American public about who Jews are. And when I say this, what I, I've been speaking about this book around the country for the last two years, and I speak often to you know, Jewish audiences, but often to broader audiences and often to specifically non-Jewish audiences, and what I've discovered is an enormous amount of goodwill. There's so much more ignorance than malice. There are so many people who want to be to use today's language, good allies to the Jewish community, and truly don't know how, there's an enormous amount of curiosity about who Jews are, and there's nowhere to send these people. So, as some of you know, I'm now a creative advisor to the Weizmann Museum in Philadelphia. Um, that museum is going through a total redesign and, and is trying to become the resor- uh, central resource for those high school teachers who maybe want to teach their students about who Jews are. Um, I'm also involved with some other smaller grassroots groups that are doing that. But it's, what's amazing to me is, and this is how it's relevant to our now post-October 7th world, is... Because part of the problem is that no one has the basic information. So, for example, I speak at colleges around the country, and before, even before this event, people would ask these questions like, you know, are Jews a religion, are Jews a race, are Jews a nationality? Jews predate all of those categories. It's like non-Jewish societies try to put Jews in a box. Jews predate the box. And I, you know, what, who are Jews? This is a basic question that no one is answering. And guess what? The answer is quite, in, it is quite important 
for our relationship with the state of Israel. Because who are Jews? We are a joinable tribal group. Joinable is important. Joinable tribal group with a shared history, homeland, and culture. Part of the culture is a non-universalizing religion. What I just said is like a paragraph in English. In Hebrew, it is one word that is two letters long, Am. We are Am Yisrael. That is who we are. It's not that hard. I just explained there was a paragraph. It wasn't that hard. We need to tell people who we are. We need to educate a broader American public about the realities of Jewish civilization. It is not a controversial fact to say that Jewish civilization is indigenous to the land of Israel. That's not a controversial fact. That's just a reality. So, you know, your proposal is about teaching the rest of the world, or the rest of the country at least, about, about Jews. What do you want Jews to learn in this moment? I mean, the same thing, because a lot of people... <laughs> you say that I paragraph think, and I think there are, write it down. Yes. I think we should start saying, think before the box. Yes, well, think you're thinking outside of the box. or No, before the box. It is before the box was even created, right? There was no box originally. Um, I mean, I, think th- I don't think that there's... The reality is that there are many... When I say, like, you know... I don't think that the binary here is Jews and non-Jews. I think the binary, I think the binary is people who have a Jewish education and are invested in this community and people who aren't. And I think that that's why I think this is a really important thing for everybody to learn. I honestly, I think that people should be learning about Jewish civilization in public school. I don't understand why they're not. Because the reality is, and you could, if you look at a high school history textbook, what does it say about Jews? There's probably a chapter at the end that says they died in the Holocaust. Like, that's the only place where, they're only in the book in the mass grave. And you might say, well, there's a lot of people who aren't in that book, except that Judaism is foundational to Western civilization. Like, you can't understand Western civilization without understanding Judaism. So I don't think my proposal is really that different for, for people within and, without of, and outside of the Jewish community, but I think that in the Jewish community, it's even more important for people to understand this because there are a lot of people who are Jewish who maybe don't even have this information themselves. Thank you. We'll be Namda. Thank you. Introduce yourself to these nice people. Hi. Do you see me? Hello. My name is Ruby Namdar. I'm a, an Israeli-American novelist, uh, born in Jerusalem, living here for the past 23 years, and actually have not felt so uh, shocked and, uh, and, and alienated here in New York, a place that I felt very at home by since last month. And I want to pick up on what you started with, that moment that, that, that this, the... The day after the disaster, a second wave of trauma hit. And for me, that trauma came in the form of silence, like Elijah Lavdil called Mamadaka, the voice of a thin silence. And this silence, shockingly, was not of our non-Jewish friends who called to check in on us. It was a silence of a large part of the Jews that we, I work with and we're connected with. And yes, there's a generational line there. And often, not only, but it's definitely. And there was a, the silence was not just personal, but was on every platform of social media where these people live there was a complete and utter silence after the 
terrible events of October 7th by the people that actually were part of the, the body of the Am that was targeted. And this was very difficult for me. And I think about it a lot, about this silence. It will not leave me. And I think about it also because soon after that, the only way in which the same people, and some of them are Jewy Jews. They're in, in organizations and they write in this publication. It's not just people who are nominally Jewish. Some of them are pretty Jewy, very Jewy. It's a good term and I love to use it. <laughs> you should all use it. It's good. Um, the, 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 the roar, the big uproar came, as you said well, before the first Israeli airplane could get it together to go and start the retaliation. Save Gaza, Jews against genocide in Gaza, and so on and so forth. This was the the voice that came up. And I was thinking about it. And, and I want to go back to what Rabbi Wolpe said earlier. It's easy and almost pleasant to hate, to be angry. But actually, we need to... I, I took from what you said. I'm trying to understand. What was this silence? And I keep thinking about it. And to me, it seems that... That means that they don't have a Jewish response for what happened. Why not? I believe that we did not raise, not all of us, of course, but many of us, our generation. And mind you, I'm saying our generation because look around us. This is pretty generational what's happening here. Our generation perhaps did not equip our youth, and that's Dara, when you said, what do you say to the Jews? I would say, yeah, this. we did not equip them with thick enough an identity, a Jewish identity, and a vocabulary, and a set of images, and, and a memory. We focus on some values. We focused on some abstract ideas, many of which are progressive, they became more and more progressive, uh, nothing against progressive values, that became less and less separable from regular progressive values, but there was no Jewish thickness to it. My essay was about the Agadah, about the narrative part of the Talmud, and I include also the stories of the Bible in it. I wrote about Jewish storytelling, ancient Jewish storytelling, that is something that most of us did not enjoy the gift of receiving. And that I find endless, endless solace and meaning in, in these terrible days. And I feel that my priority is going to be to do my best to start educating ourselves about that great treasure box of Jewish memory, Jewish stories, and Agadah, the, 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 it's not legends, it's the ancient tales of our people. Thank you. So, Ruby, first of all... Um, thank, thank you, thank you. First of all, uh, thank you for offending the young. It is usually my role. 
but you did it so beautifully. Thank you. Uh, so I want to plug right into both the generational gap and the storytelling that you discussed. Uh, you're the one who, who taught me uh, the sort of importance and role of, of Jewish storytelling, not just in, in preserving our people, but actually in, in, in prompting a better reality when the one given to us and observable yeah. outside in the world is nothing to write home about. Uh, could it be that part of the reason that we have become so bad at telling stories that sustain us isn't only because we have abandoned or put aside the traditional sources and texts that used to, to nourish and, and, and keep us, but also because that the means of telling stories have changed dramatically. There is, uh, I, I, you might disagree with me, a fundamental difference between holding a book and going on a 20-second TikTok video. Uh, we yeah. have a whole generation of people now who respond to stories in a very different way. They consume it on different platforms. It means something different. Could it be that the internet killed the Jewish story? I think internet killed all the stories that we, the way we used to be told them. But internet is not going anywhere. So this, there are stories. And they're not just bad stories in, on the internet. Internet is also a very, and can be and should be, a very lush learning environment. And yeah, sometimes in 20 seconds and sometimes in two minutes. I have to tell you that, that that's shockingly suitable for Talmudic tales. A good Talmudic tale, if you can't tell it in two minutes, you didn't get, you get something wrong. As a matter of fact, I think that we should run to the internet and run to TikTok and run to Instagram. And we should bombard the world not just with pro-Israeli propaganda, which we should because it's, there's so much of the other side, but with positive, beautiful, intriguing, challenging, risque, provocative, ancient ancient but amazingly new Jewish content. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Adam, we're going to keep you uh, to the end as the godfather of this occasion. We, we will skip you momentarily. Armin, I, I want you to both introduce yourself and repeat the exact verbatim title of your essay. Um, I'm Armin Rosen. I'm a writer for Tablet Magazine. Um, what is the... T I, I know that there, there's like a word in it that I probably shouldn't say in front of... Uh, I, I believe you should. Hundreds of, uh, hundreds of people. Is it something like uh, the Satmars don't give a f or something like that? I believe it is the subtle art of not giving a f like a Satmar. Excellent. Okay, great. Um, so my essay, which was written uh, in the ancient times before uh, this Pashmini Atzeret, uh, was sort of a reflection on my personal kind of models of unapologetic Jewish existence, uh, which are my former neighbors in North Brooklyn, the Satmars of Williamsburg. And the essay is, there are Satmars all over the place, but this one was specifically about the Satmars of Williamsburg, uh, who are, from the outside, just such a, such a, like their existence is baffling. What are they doing there? How did they get so much of the most expensive neighborhood in the entire city? <laughs> Why won't they leave? Where, how do they make their money? Uh, you know, what are they doing? Who are they? All of these are answerable questions to anybody who has even sort of a little bit of curiosity about it. Um, 
But it, it sort of got me thinking, though, about like, what, what was sort of the source of my admiration of these, of these people. Is it the fact that they're uh, you know, so defiant of everything else around them? It certainly doesn't have anything to do with uh, the way their society is organized or their way of life or even their religious beliefs. Um, it, it turned out over the course of writing this, because the, the title was kind of thought of before the actual essay was written, interestingly, I think. Um, hard to remember back that far. The thing that I admire about them is that they really just, they really want it. They really, they want it more than we do. They want it more than other groups of Jews. They know exactly what the it is, right? The it is the, the perpetuation of their community, uh, which exists, you know, not to make people wealthy, not to be able to hang on to, you know, 15 square blocks of Williamsburg. It exists in order to educate their children. It exists in order to perpetuate their version of Yiddishkeit. It exists to, you know, perform its vote and sanctify reality and all those other sorts of wonderful things. Uh, you know, they, they don't drive fancy cars. Their, you know, their vacation homes are all on Satmar camps along with everybody else in their community upstate. Uh, it's not sort of an ostentatious lifestyle. The fanciest things you'll see on Lee Avenue or, or Judaica, basically. Um, and it's, it's a model of just really not just wanting it but realizing it. Um, and the, the example alone, just the fact that they exist at all, uh, almost proves that it's possible to have a kind of organized, unapologetic Jewish existence. Uh, but my essay kind of asked the question at the end without really answering it, because the answer is, is hard and I don't have it necessarily, is what would it look like for us to kind of ad adopt some of the Satmar spirit for ourselves? Um, and, and I think that there were sort of past examples of... Uh, what uh, Ruby just explained, or just described as kind of a thick Jewish existence, right? There was kind of the, you know, the Yiddish culture in New York of 100 years ago when there were, you know, seven daily newspapers in Yiddish. Uh, the, the organized movements in the United States used to be quite a bit more real than they are now. Uh, I'm not saying that that's necessarily, that we should build kind of exact replicas of that, uh, but if we want to reach into the not-so-distant past for examples of what really wanting it looks like as people who are not Haredi Jews, uh, I, I think we can find them. So if we're, if we're clapping for everyone, we'll never get out of here. Um, it's such a polite audience. I love this. Um, thank you. Um, Armin, give us like one tip for someone who's in their 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s and wants some of that spirit but doesn't know where to start. What's one easy way to start? The easiest way to start, and the way it started for me, uh, would, and this is not practical for everyone, uh, but this is the exact advice that I actually gave to a lunatic left-winger at a loft party in Brooklyn, you know, in Bushwick maybe a month and a half ago. Heather was there. I told him, look, drop everything you're doing, go to Israel, find, like, you know, a relatively orthodox yeshiva and just stay there for, like, two to three months. Um, again, it's not for everyone. <laughs> Uh, There'll be sign-up sheets at the door for anyone interested. No, I, I think the answer is just to learn as much as you can about who you are as fast as you can. That is your best defense against all of this. Um, and it's, it's remarkable and frankly depressing what American Jews don't get taught in the United States. Um, and it's also like remarkable and depressing that up until I worked for Tablet, so many of my encounters with, you know, the real gems of, like, Israeli and broader Jewish culture over the last hundred years were kind of all by accident. Uh, you know, things like 
the fact that Ehud Bani performed for, you know, my Nisia Institute uh, high school trip to Israel in 2005. Um, would I have heard about him had he not done that? I don't know. Uh, you know, the, the fact that I found a copy of Past Continuous by Yaakov Shabtai, uh, you know, on like the dollar rack at a used bookstore, again, in Bushwick, interestingly. Um, there, there just needs to be some more kind of organized way of uh, telling young American Jews sort of who they really are. Um, and my, my advice to anyone, I guess by this point a decade younger than me, would be to, you know, read up and jump in as fast and as hard and as high up as you can. Uh, it is hard for me to imagine anyone a decade younger than you. Uh, and yet we move right along to a nut wolf. Okay, thank you. So uh, my essay emerged... First of all, oh, uh, introduction, what? former member of Knesset, etc. Oh, Would yes. you like to give the, the highlight reel before you jump in? What? Would you like to give the highlight reel of your biography before you jump in? Okay. Hi, my name is Einat Wilf. I uh, used to be a member of parliament in Israel. I, ever since being out of politics about a decade ago, I've been writing and speaking on issues relating to Israel, the Jewish people, the conflict, the path to peace, Zionism. Good. Okay. Approved. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my essay emerged from a moment uh, about a couple years ago. I was a visiting professor at Georgetown. One of the courses I taught was called Zionism and Anti-Zionism. At the end of the course, one of my students, Zoe, who's here, um, she's Jewish, she came up to me and she said, this course was more valuable to me than dozens of hours of therapy. And... Um, this led me on a process of thinking, what was it that required the therapy and what was it in the course that offered it? And I realized that especially a lot of young Jews, especially on campuses, are subject to a dynamic that I've come to call the pound of flesh. So, Shakespeare got it wrong. It's not the Jews who demand the pound of flesh. It is the Jews who are demanded to hand over the pound of flesh. And the dynamic works this way. As the price of entry, as the price of acceptance to those circles and places uh, that Jews want to be a part of, that we've come to think of as our home, the social justice movements, the progressive movements, the price of entry has been to hand over a mostly metaphorical, but increasingly less so, but a metaphorical pound of flesh. And that pound of flesh is essentially a mutilation of your Jewish identity. And it begins relatively benign with saying that you don't like Netanyahu or this Israeli government or the opening phrase of anyone who talks about Israel. It's okay to criticize Israel. Everyone feels compelled to say that. And it begins uh, in that benign way and you gain acceptance. But the dynamic of the pound of flesh is the dynamic of bullying. When you give your lunch money over to a bully, they don't go away. They come back the next day. 
And the pound of flesh works in the same way. You hand over, and then they come back for more. So then you're expected to say that Israel's an apartheid country. And then you're expected to say that it's a genocidal regime. And the process is successive uh, exercise in what I've called to call basically ceremonies of exorcism, where you are demanded to prove that you are the good kind of Jew. And by handing it over more and more of those pounds of flesh. And this kind of dynamic of bullying takes an emotional toll. And the reason that Zionism provides a therapy to that emotional toll is that from the beginning, Zionism was not just a movement for establishing a state. It was planned and intended and designed as an idea of healing the Jewish condition. Because all societies, Chinese, Persian, Greek, they all have the insight that power corrupts. But only the Jews, as illiterate, powerless people, could have the insight that powerlessness corrupts no less. That the need to constantly ingratiate yourself takes a toll. And this recognition that powerlessness also takes an emotional toll has a corrupting influence. This is what Zionism sought to heal. And what I've seen over the years working with young people is that they have come to their activism, they have come to their Zionism from the recognition that this dynamic of bullying is never-ending that there's no amount of pounds of flesh that they can hand over that will ever be enough except for the amount after which they are no longer Jews. So what a lot of them have is this visceral T-intersection where they basically say, I'm done. And the thing about bullying is that bullying preys on shame, on weakness, if you feel you don't like how you look, you don't like your background, how you talk, it's easier to prey on you. But if you're confident, the bullies go elsewhere. So what a lot of these young Jews are beginning to awake to is to use Zionism not as a movement to establish a state, but for its therapeutic quality, for its confidence, Zionism has become a shorthand of basically saying, nothing to see here, bullies. I'm a proud, confident Jew. Go away. And that's basically what my essay is about, that the only response to anti-Zionism is simply more Zionism. And a big round of applause for Beth Stevens, who has to leave us. Then, you know, I, I think a lot of us are seeing what's happening on college campuses, like the, the, the really the bad videos, right? Like the bad stuff. Um, I could list like 10. And there's two responses, right? One is just like, we got to get out of these schools. Like they do not deserve us to seeing how they clearly don't value us. 
um, let's, let's pull our kids out, let's go somewhere else. And then there's the, no, this actually means we can't leave these places because they need us. Where do you fall on that continuum? I go with both. Uh, so uh, both go and build your spa uh, places. I always thought that the beauty of Zionism is that at its core, it had the notion that the best revenge is living well. Right? I mean, we decided actually as a people not to spend our time on revenge. And, you know, we had a lot of good reasons to engage in it. And we didn't. And we actually went and built something pretty amazing. So I think that's one of the wonderful things about what Jews do. And Brett talked about it. Uh, like, you're not wanted. Go build something else. Don't spend your life... Uh, being bitter and taking revenge. Go build something that's exciting and you can be proud of. But I also am very much of the view, if you want to stay, stay, but then stay in your full, confident self. So as long as the position is one of being fully there, both are, in my view, uh, good choices. Hallelujah. Um, we now go to, to Adam Bello. I want to ask you a few questions, and then we would have a rapid-fire, uh, very quick round for everyone on this panel. And then you could see, I mean, Stephanie, look, look, look at this, look at this bunch. The, the people have questions. These, these are curious people, curious Jews with lots of questions. Um, Godfather, how are you? Um, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Let me ask you a question. Um, well, who are you? Well, that's right. Adam Bello, introduce yourself. Well, I'm, my name is Adam Bello. I'm the publisher of Wicked Sun Books, behind which there is a story. And uh, anyone who thinks there's no such place as heaven has never been me in this moment. Because publishers and editors are normally uh, obscure, anonymous background figures, uh, certainly do not sit on stage with their, uh, with their star authors. So here I am um, in a in a, in a very happy condition, um, privileged to, to be among my, my authors, my colleagues, my partners, my friends, my family. I'm so grateful to all of you and to all the other authors, contributors who are not able to be here tonight. Um, what was the question? The question is arriving right now. The question is this. Um, so you began uh, and established your career um, in, in the time that seems to me, since I am of the same era, more or less, uh, very different than, than our own, uh, a time in which books resonated mightily, uh, in which ideas percolated and then were disseminated and could actually have the power to change culture. Uh, and I'm going to posit more by way of provocation than by way of stating a fact that our era is different. We've already talked a little bit about technology, but even when you hear the tenor of conversations, you hear fierce, shrill arguments. You hear people shouting at each other. You hear, as Jody said, people not really listening, not really asking questions. Um, do you believe, um, and I believe that you do because you just published this great big book, that books such as these have the capacity to change the world? Well, as Jews, we must believe this. Um, our entire uh, identity and history is based on a book. 
uh, what, what are we going to do? You know, uh, give up uh, re writing, reading, and publishing, but not in a million years. Uh, Jews have been doing that, doing that for thousands of years, and they'll be doing it for thousands of years to come. Uh, I have no doubt of that. As far as you know, the condition of American culture in this in this time and place at this moment, you know, I've been a book editor and publisher for 35 years. I've seen a lot of change. Um, my father was a writer uh, in the days when he was publishing novels. Every time he or Norman Mailer or Philip Roth published a book, it was an event. It was a front page review. There were you know they were all on talk shows. Everybody in America talked about this book. That's the environment I grew up in, and it was, the, it was what I was led to expect would always be the case. In my career of 35 years, I've seen a lot of change, and of course, technology, you know, continue, every time a new technology arises, and this has been true since Gutenberg, every time a new technology arises, starting with the rotary press, uh, everybody says, that's it, um, everything is changed forever, uh, books are obsolete. Uh, they said it uh, when the telegraph was introduced, they said it when the radio was introduced, they said it when television was introduced, they said it when the internet was introduced. They keep saying it, it's not true. Books are uh, numinous objects. They, they still, they emanate authority and gravitas and they continue to drive everything else, whether you realize it or not, notice it or not, they drive, books are the source of everything else, including what you see on TV and, and, and Hollywood movies. So I am, my faith in books is by no means diminished. Um, however, as a publisher, um, I am continually challenged to find ways to create attention for books, to create excitement, interest, to make them relevant. And we use all kinds of tricks to do that, including the new technologies that, that I've mentioned. Um, we rely, you know, more and more these days it, it must be said. So initially, when I, when I first started out in publishing, I was in an editorial meeting at Simon & Schuster, and a book was proposed. I don't remember what it was. And somebody said, someone from the marketing department said, well, what's his platform? And I thought, what do you mean? We're Simon & Schuster. I, I, I thought we were his platform. You know, we've picked this book to, to publish. Isn't that good enough? And it turns out not to be. You know, in this, in this environment, more and more, it's more and more the case that we rely on the author's platform, their connections, their social media feed, uh, their, their, their activity, their demand, for consistent demand for attention, um, and, and we support them to the best of our ability. The reason that this book is exciting and, and I think is, is going to work is we have 65 contributors, um, none of whom wish to be silent. That is amazing. Annabella, thank you so much. Um, just, I'm just saying there will be a book signing afterwards, so you guys can all get these, these books signed. Um, let's start back up here. Let's do one rap, two rapid-fire questions, then we'll get to audience. What scares you and what gives you hope? David Hazzoni, take us away. In brief, what 30, 100 questions. You can lie down if you want. Like a therapist. Oh, I see. Um, what scares me is the fears of my people. Every single speaker tonight, um, subtly, underneath the surface, or very explicitly, was addressing the questions of should we be afraid or should we be confident? 
And how do we get confident? And why is that urgent and important? Um, and uh, for me, all of these, learning about real Jews, ask, why don't people ask questions? Because they're afraid. Right? Confidence leads you to have the ability to ask questions. Why don't we talk properly? Because we're afraid. Okay, and, and especially the question of stories that, that Ruby discussed, because I know that where I get my confidence is from the stories, not just of the victims of October 7th, but as an Israeli, we were exposed to a lot of stories of the heroes of October 7th, the incredible, unbelievable, ordinary Israelis who risked their lives to save others. And I think that, um, that the diaspora can really use a dose of looking for reasons to overcome fear and to proceed forward with, with tremendous confidence because we have so much that we can, in, un, in confidence, get together and do. Wonderful. Rabbi Ropi, what scares you about this moment and juncture in time, and what gives you hope for the future? Um, what scares me about this moment? You just added an addendum. Uh, what scares me in general and what gives me hope... In general, like sharks, clowns, right, stuff exactly. like that, but... What scares me is human darkness, and what gives me hope is human resilience. Uh, the Torah is very realistic about human beings. The first pair of brothers, one murders the other. You can't get darker than that, right? I mean, that's it. Um, and yet, at the end, uh, the same thing is true, even though there is a constant threat of darkness in human beings, and it has never gone away and will never go away as long as we are here there is also something in us that fights against it. And I think that the Jewish people are, have exemplified that, and what we need to do now is stay strong without being uncompassionate. And so we have to keep both, I would say, strength and compassion, um, and those are hard to maintain at the same time, but they're essential if we're going to remain in the deepest and most significant sense Jews. So uh, over the years when I was asked, uh, often by non-Jews, you know, how can you live in Israel knowing that all these rockets are pointed at you and all these enemies are around you and they outnumber you? How do you live in Israel? And my answer was always one word, denial. Uh, and, um, and the mask of, you know, the ability to sustain that denial is gone. And what was possible now has become probable. We have, at the moment, no sense of, you know, you can come up now, because October 7th happened, anything can happen now. So all the darkest scenarios that we've heard, now we're like, yeah, I guess that could happen. So that is what scares me a lot. And I have a lot, as you can sense, a lot of dark days, and I feel that I'm holding myself by the fingernails not to go deep into the abyss. And what gives me hope is to look at human history and to see that people did emerge from that, but it is really hard to see it right now. Thank you. Armin. Um... My big fears are kind of very day-to-day. -day. Uh, you know, will, will a synagogue get torched in New York City? 
will the Iranians test a nuclear weapon in two weeks or perhaps set off a large quantity of conventional explosives underground to make it seem as if they've tested one? Uh, will Haifa be on fire in two weeks? Who knows? Um, we, we have enough sort of day-to-day -day fears that we could dwell on, a number of which, believe it or not, have not been realized yet uh, and might not be realized at all. Um, but the, the sources of hope are also uh, kind of day-to-day. Uh, we have a really amazing record of seizing great victories out of the jaws of very dark moments. Um, and sometimes it takes centuries, uh, but sometimes it doesn't take all that long at all. Uh, and nothing has happened yet to preclude a possibility of something uh, potentially very positive coming out of this. What scares me? Um, having nothing to publish. <laughs> But never fear, there's no, there's no danger of that. Because history continues. You know, there was a time when, when we, when we, you know, when we launched Wicked Sun three years ago, or let's say two years ago when, we, when, when David Hazoni and I launched, came, came up with the idea for Jewish priorities, we conceived of it in a sort of carnival-esque mood. Let's have, you know, let's give a party. Let, let, let's invite 65 of our most admired friends and, and authors to, uh, to, to propose some kind of crazy idea, you know. And this, um, this, was our, this was our way of getting a conversation started because we felt that there was not a real conversation going on uh, about Jewish priorities. And uh, so we put two years into creating this book um, a lot of effort, a lot of time, um, and two weeks before it was published, the subject changed, you know, uh, as it is wont to do uh, from time to time. The first time in my, career, in my publishing career the subject changed dramatically was when the Berlin Wall came down. I'd been a book editor for a year. I'd been signing up books about, you know, the Cold War. All of a sudden the Cold War was over. Um, uh, what did we... It, it, the, it's felt like there was a vacuum. But what came into that vacuum? You know, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a great moment of uh, philosophical optimism, um, uh, deep historical reflection. There was not any lack of books to publish. Subject changed again after 9-11. Same thing happened, just when we were getting bored as publishers, which is a terrible curse. And that is, and that is a, uh, a very hopeful summation. Uh, we want this to be, we, we want to leave everyone here on a hopeful note by being the only Jewish event in history that actually ends on time. So I'm going to ask the remaining three people to, to uh, answer briefly, and then there are questions, a lot of questions. Ruby Namdar, scares you, gives you hope. Okay, what scares me is I, my first memories were formed on the age of three, on the 67 war, and then at the age of nine, another formative memory, Yom Kippur war, I was nine, feeling of an existential threat that was not just like free-floating anxiety, like really us, us. And what scares me is that at moments, I have this feeling now, that takes me back almost viscerally to those moments, a, 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 a feeling of a true existential threat. But what gives me hope 
is exactly the fact that I'm so immersed in Jewish stories and the Jewish story. And I know that we've had so many of these moments, some of them miraculous saving, as you said, some of them terrible, and there was no miracle. But somehow we developed this crazy resilience. Because look at us now. Here we are. Who survived so much trauma and remained so vital? So we developed this skill of survival on steroids. That gives me a lot of hope. Baruch Hashem. Dara. I'm, I'm the prophet of doom and I'm the queen of catastrophic thinking. Um, so I'm not going to share all my horrible fears because I'm not going to bring us all down. Um, but I, you know, I've had the privilege since publishing this book of meeting so many people around the country and, and in the Jewish community and beyond it who have so much more hope than I do. And um, really, and also meeting a lot of young people who are really inventing new ways of revitalizing Jewish life um, in Israel and here. And and I'm I, there's I have a lot of hope from uh, that my readers have given me. Um, there's you know our ancestors had so much courage, and our descendants will too. Excellent, Jody. Um, what scares me is disinformation particularly the what we see the willful um, manipulation of whether it's data or images or narrative to just avoid the truth or hide the truth. Um, and, you know, I think I'm going to say that what inspires me is storytelling or the, the way in which just in the last four weeks or three weeks plus we have seen so much important um, storytelling. I see a sort of an outpouring of people who want to tell their stories or share their stories and see people responding to it in the foreword, but also in so many other publications. And I think, you know, going back to what we were talking about before about how technology plays into that, I mean, the flip side of the cesspool of disinformation on the Internet is the ways in which it has in some pockets allowed people to tell their stories in different and visceral and in hopeful ways. Um, My old boss, uh, Dean Becquet, used to say the key to innovation was to be able to discern between tradition and habit, tradition being um, the core of who you are and what you do, and the habit being the particular way you might do it. You might have written a newspaper column before, and maybe now you have a podcast. One thing that I've been listening to um, the last few weeks is the great podcast Israel Story, which normally is this highly edited, you know, it's like the Israeli version of This American Life, and every episode takes months to produce, and they've just spun up what they call postcards, uh, little snippets of conversation or moments happening around Israel. It's interesting, because Mishi Harman, the host of the show, is a friend of mine, he, his topper of the show, he says, these aren't stories, they're just conversations. And I'm like, Mishi, why are you saying that? It's a sto- They're all stories. And I do think that there are a number of ways in which people are finding ways to tell the story of both October 7th and the aftermath and the prequels that are important and hopeful. Uh, okay. There, there are a whole host of questions here that say something along the lines of uh, either I am or my children are 
you know, were horrified by the events of October 7th. Uh, no uh, lack of moral clarity there. But at the same time, this war strikes us as a lot. We feel the suffering of the Palestinian people. We're not entirely sure about the capacity of the Israeli government to conduct it in a way that is ethical and just. We feel completely torn. Please help us uh, figure out what to think. I don't want to be unfair and assign it to a particular person, but Jody is nodding, so I'm going to go with you. I mean, I think this question is so perfect and great because of course you feel that way. Of course you feel horrible and angry and afraid of what happened on October 7th and awful about all of the people who are dying in Gaza and the destruction. And of course, by the way, you also, I hope, feel frightened and angry about the seeming impossibility of resolving this conflict um, because all of that is true. I mean, I, yesterday I read uh, these statements that all the organizations are crafting and the rabbis and the institutions, they're so tortured and difficult. There was one that came from Rabbi Jill Jacobs of Truah, and it was very long, but there was one line in it that said, I stand on the side of humanity, and I'm like, could I get a bumper sticker with that, please? I mean, yeah, like we stand on the side of humanity. We are really sad and angry that so many people are dying in such awful ways. I don't see why we can't hold that together. I mean, it, it seems to me to be the most clear, obvious, respectable moral position and the most Jewish position. Now, it does, and, and I think we're very lucky, by the way, that we don't have to figure out exactly what to do in the war. You know, we're not actually prosecuting the war because, um, and I'll say one more thing, which is last night I was at this dinner and people were like, somebody said something like, isn't it true that like the destruction, it was after the Jabalia refugee camp, the first attack on, isn't it true that the buildings, more buildings fall more easily because of the tunnels underneath? And I was like, maybe, but like, why, your, your people are looking for something to make them feel better about Israel's prosecution of the war, about, about the devastation in Gaza. I don't think we should want to feel better. I think we have to sit with that. It's pretty awful. Even if it's justified, even if it's the only choice, it's terrible. I'm going to tell you a very quick story that is actually not about this. Um, most of you know, well, it is, but it's not, like all Jewish stories. So most of you know that uh, Judaism doesn't talk as much about the afterlife as other traditions, but we do have a word for hell, which is Gehenna. And that's actually based on a real valley right outside the walls of Jerusalem where in ancient times Canaanites would sacrifice children. And, and Jews thought that's hell. And about 50 years ago, some archaeologists were excavating there. And they found the oldest bit of Torah in the world, more than 500 years older than the Dead Sea Scrolls, rolled up silver amulets. You can see them in the Israel Museum. And when they unrolled them, they said, May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God be with you and give you peace. Which means that through all the difficulties, the oldest bit of Torah in the world is a blessing of peace that was snatched from hell. And that is what we hope for now. Let's end with something dicey. Where do you see Israel in 75 years from now? Uh, <laughs> I don't, don't all raise your hands at once. Do you believe there will, be, there will eventually be a two-state solution? If not, what do you think will happen to the Palestinian population? 
This is the quietest this panel has ever been. Yeah, I think, I think Annette, this is, this is you. Fine. Uh, so I'll use it also to say a word on the previous question. There's, you know, there's always this phrase about that the Israeli Defense Forces is the most moral army in the world. And a friend of mine once said, well, we are the only army that even enters the competition. Uh, so, I mean, I think we go back 100 years and the dynamic is always the same. When the Jews lose uh, and there's Arab violence, the response is always to accept Arab demands, going back to the white paper. But when the Jews win, the immediate response is to call for a ceasefire and to try to undo whatever gains the Jews or the state of Israel has made. Uh, so we need to understand that this is what's going on right now and not to play into that. Um, the most positive scenario and the one that I'm working towards, I think one of the things we've been lacking for a very long time is the ability to both understand what we're up against. We're up against forces that essentially believe in a total way that the Jewish people as a people have no right to be free and sovereign anywhere between the river and the sea. That's it. That's the ideology that we're up against, and it's the ideology of the vast majority of the people and countries that surround us. It's the, it's the ideology that actually defines what it means to be a Palestinian. That's what we're up against. Once we understand that, we also ha need to have a radical, positive vision for change that is based on the understanding that the only way that we will ever have peace is when Palestinians in the Arab world look at the Jews and don't think foreign, white, European, settler, colonialist crusaders, which are just all synonyms for you're foreign, therefore you're temporary, and you're going to go away, but look at us and say, Abraham. And I was once in a panel, and I talked about the fact that we cannot have peace until Palestinians and the Arab world recognizes the equal right of the Jewish people to self-determination in the land. And some people there were laughing and were like, do you expect Palestinians to be Zionists? And they thought it was a big own. And I said, yes. And because we are expected to support the Arab-Palestinian equal right to self-determination in the land and to support that, and that's considered a basic requirement to be considered a liberal Jew. But when we say that we expect the Palestinians, the Arab world, to equally recognize the right of the Jewish people to self-determination in their land, a.k.a. Zionism, that is such a big request. So we need to understand that we're up against an annihilationist ideology, but I do believe in the possibility of peoples and nations to change. I'm now reading a great book called Embracing Defeat about Japan after World War II, 
Today we think of Japan as sushi and Pikachu. Read about what they did to the Chinese, to the Koreans. There were a society mobilized for death. Societies change, but not without a radical vision for their change. So my most optimistic vision 75 years from now is that the Jewish people live among a Zionist Arab world. I am just thrilled to see you all here, and thank you so much for coming. I want to wish all of us, and this is what I've been telling all my friends, stay safe, stay sane, and stay strong. Thank you very much. Thank you.